Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Dr. A.J. Hellier. Hisham Hellier is a senior associate fellow and visiting professor at the Royal United Services Institute in London, and he's also at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's written extensively on contemporary issues in the Middle East, on Islam, and and a range of of issues that have been in the contemporary world, both in in the UK, Europe, and in the region. So, so Hisham, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really exciting to have you on the show. My pleasure, Simon. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to to talking with you today. You've got such a a wide-ranging canon of work and I, I'm curious to to try and unpack some of this a little bit, if if I may. So, as, as with all of these these podcasts, I normally start with asking a question of how did you get interested in the uh, the work that you've been doing? So, how did you get interested in in the Middle East and Islam and and the political dimensions that you're working on, please? Uh, well, it's uh, it's not the most exciting of stories, I have to say. I mean, um, I'm half English and half Arab, um, and on my Arab side, um, from different places in the Arab world, mostly Egyptian, but also Sudanese and, and more widely in North Africa. So I have a personal interest in that regard. Sure. Um, and uh, but I didn't start my academic career looking at the Arab world. I, I started my academic career. Um, looking at Europe, uh, particularly minority communities in Europe, um, which I had a, an interest in, being partly from a, minor, a minority and partly from the majority. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm half English. My father's um, uh, a, a white Englishman from South England and Sussex. Um, my mother was born and raised in Cairo, Egypt. Um, so I've, I've had that interest in minority-majority relations for quite some time. Um, I split my uh, my upbringing uh, between the Arab world and the UK. Uh, so between London, Cairo, and uh, and Abu Dhabi. Right. Um, and uh, at some point, I moved uh, to Cairo. Uh, to actually get to work on a book, and uh, I just had my first child, so we were, we were looking for some quiet time away, um, and that was December 1st, 2010, so it didn't quite work out as planned in terms of yeah. being quiet, because the Arab uprisings began sure. shortly thereafter. Um, so that's that in, in a nutshell, as it were. So that that's really fascinating. I can see this obviously this this vested personal interest in it. And and what did you then decide to to do, having had this sort of this split upbringing in different places? What did you then decide to read at university? Uh, my bachelor's degree was in law, um, which uh, uh, I began at Sheffield and finished at Sheffield um, back in the day. Um, while I did that degree, um, I did uh, modules in politics and also religion um, because I was interested in both of those sort of fields. I didn't want to get a bachelor's degree in either. Right. Um, I did want to. I did want a degree in law. Um, I also realized quite quickly, very early on in my degree, that I didn't want to practice law, uh, but that I did want a degree in law. I wanted that training. Sure. Um, and then I swiftly moved into my master's degree, also at Sheffield, um, 
uh, in international political economy. Um, and I stayed at Sheffield primarily because Sheffield had, um, at the time, um, hopefully it still is, but it was the top-rated politics department in the country. Um, so I thought it would make sense to continue my studies there um, until I decided where I was going to go for my doctorate, um, which I decided, I think, around my third my third year of uni that I wanted to do, but I wasn't quite certain where I wanted to do it. Right. Um, I ended up going to Warwick for my PhD, which was, um, it was multidisciplinary, um, where I got to do law, I got to do some politics um, and some religious studies. Um, and that was in 2005. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the things that I and, and others admire about your work, Hisham, is this, this multidisciplinary dimension to it, the, the political, religious, um, in some ways sociological, economic dimensions that are really important in understanding um, in understanding regional politics and, and indeed the other dimensions that you look at. So how did you set about doing this, this multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary type research? Um, I'll be frank with you. It wasn't something that I particularly designed. It was simply something that I was interested in. So when I started doing law, in fact, I mean, those listeners of yours that have done law, they'll know that generally speaking, we apply for degrees um, that are uh, that come under the LLB, right? Bachelor yeah, of Laws, sure. but it's the LLB, which means that your course is actually quite structured and you have very little um, flexibility in picking different topics as part of your degree. Um, and it's a harder law degree uh, within the uh, whatever faculty of law you're going into to actually get admitted into. Um, so I got admitted onto the, the LLB um, when I went to Sheffield, and I actually transferred out of it. Right. Um, and what I wanted to do was still get a law degree and get all that training, but I didn't want to have the LLB because there were quite a few modules there that are really geared to having you practice, and I really just wanted a broader uh, legal training. Um, so I transferred off the LLB onto actually what was a degree that was easier for people to get onto, although, as I said, I was already on the LLB, and it was the BA in law, so the Bachelor of Arts in Law. Um, still a law degree, still in the faculty, still awarded by the faculty, but not the LLB. Um, and I did so because it meant that, on the one hand, I wouldn't have automatic exemption from all of the exams that I'd need in order to go on to further qualifications to practice, but it would also mean that I'd have a lot more flexibility in picking modules within the faculty as well as outside of the faculty and still get a degree in law. Um, so that was that was why I did that, because I was just very interested in uh, studying politics. I was very interested in doing religious studies. Um mm. When I did my master's, it was in the, uh, the Department of Politics. Um, the international political economy one was, uh, uh, it gave me, um, how should I say, a, a sort of an up, um, perhaps in other ways, because um, it allowed me to get uh, research training status, which meant that I'd have certain exemptions within um, my PhD program, which I intended, obviously, to do later on. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, uh, that's how that developed. And then once I got to the idea of doing my PhD, it was less about discipline, more about people. 
So sure. there were several people that I wanted to study with. Um, and one of them was more or less situated within sociology. Um, another one of them was uh, within politics. Um, and um, I remember getting a scholarship to go to Warwick to do it with um, a, a very significant sociologist in academic uh, terms, but also a practitioner. He he worked at the Commission for Racial Equality before going to Warwick. Right. Uh, Mohammed Anwar. Um, he was director of research at the CRE. Um, so it worked out like that, really. So from from reading your your work over the the past decade or so, it seems to me that there's there's two main strands in in what you're trying to do. One relates to sort of the 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 role of of Muslims within particular societies, particular communities in the UK and, and in Europe. And the other relates more to the, the sort of the the political upheaval and the Arab uprisings, obviously focusing on, on Egypt. So I, I wonder if we can spend a bit of time talking about the Egyptian case first, please. Is that okay? That's fine. What so, would you like to know? Well, you were in Egypt in, in late 2010 for a period of, of calm with the, the new baby on the way. So... What was ta- a few what, weeks. Yeah. A few so, weeks. What was it Literally like at that weeks. point then? What was, what was Egypt like? like at that point then? So uh, I remember very clearly that when I got there, um, Egypt seemed to be uh, kind of restless, I, I would say. I, I, do, I do remember it being restless, but I never dreamed that anything would actually happen. So I did feel that it was restless. I did feel that you... Uh, 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 that there was something in the air, but I didn't think anything would actually happen. I just felt like people were very upset um, and uh, feeling under a lot of pressure. Sure. Um, but I didn't feel. I, I. I. I won't. I won't try to revise history. I know that some people might, but um, I didn't think that anything was actually going to happen. And even after uh, the Tunisian case, um, I remember very clearly. Um, writing a piece that was published in January where uh, I was extremely dubious about there being any uh, any potential um, for uh, uh, upheaval to take place in the same way in Egypt. Yeah. And then the events of late January took place. Uh, they did. And, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to say that I was wrong and that indeed uh, there was something going on. And, that those uh, those undercurrents that I had felt but just didn't think were as serious as uh, as what they turned out to be uh, resulted in an uprising. Um, and I was there throughout that time. I was there throughout um, the 18 days of uprising uh, in Egypt, um, which I have to say were some of the most intriguing and inspiring 18 days of my life. I can imagine, um, yeah. And I was there for the aftermath um, during that year and a bit of when the military was in direct control. Um, and then when Mohammed Morsi became president, um, the tumultuous sort of period of his rule, um, the overthrow by the military following, you know, mass protests, um, and obviously many things since but if you wanted to uh, to focus on those early years, um, which is really, you know, we're only talking a period of about sort of two and a half years before yeah. um, the coup happens in the middle of 2013. And it was a very interesting time. Um, 
it was a very open time, um, full of flux. I remember writing um, a tremendous amount during that time because I was living in Cairo pretty much full time during that period. I wasn't doing even much in the way of travel. I was there was more than enough to keep me busy just by yeah. looking at what was going outside my window. Um, and it was a very rewarding time, uh, a very challenging time as well, because uh, insofar as it was very inspiring to see um, what had happened in early 2011, um, the, uh, the challenges for the average Egyptian during that time as well um, were, were quite intense, uh, particularly given the economic struggles that were happening. Yeah, of um, course. And uh, the lack of security in certain ways, uh, even though that was, I think that was overly emphasized because I don't think crime increased by as much as people felt insecure. Right, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, there were many things about that period, so it would really depend what you're, what you're looking at. Well, I want to talk, Chun, on the book that, that you wrote. Obviously, it um, came out a couple of years ago, but it, it touches on the the broad transformation across that, that two-and-a-half-year period that you mentioned. It's called A Revolution Undone, Egypt's Road Beyond Revolt. And yeah. it's it's a wonderful piece of, of work that, that looks at a, a devastating period of Egyptian history. And, uh, I mean, it's it's a really well-put-together piece that, that calls people out for their their complicity, for their inaction, for their their mistakes. But for anyone who's not read it, can you just give us a, a brief outline of what it is that you're trying to do in it, please? So, the, you know, it's uh, it, it was an interesting book because I didn't really do it for um, the typical reasons that I suppose an author might write a book. Um, I've written several books over the past sort of 15, 20 years. Um, this one... Um, was really born almost out of frustration by seeing uh, the, uh, the the history of the revolutionary period being rewritten and being redone in order to fit certain political agendas. Um, and uh, I make it very clear in the book that I'm not trying to write um, the definitive history to the exclusion of anybody else's history, but that I experienced a certain... Uh, a certain period of Egyptian history as somebody who was, part, who was and is uh, Egyptian as well as being English. Um, and I wanted that narrative to be protected because it was also a narrative that I felt hadn't been represented enough in a lot of the common literature. Um, so uh, especially looking back as to when I... Uh, uh, I wrote it, I began writing it maybe a year or so after 2013, I think it was 2014, 2015, I started writing it, um, and finished it, you know, within uh, uh, within a year or so, and then published it, I believe, in 2016. Um, and... Uh, as I said, much of it was designed to be a bit of a corrective about how discussion, uh, discussions around the uprising were unfolding in a lot of popular literature on the subject, uh, the role of religion in Egypt, um, what the Muslim Brotherhood did or did not represent, um, you know, popularity of different movements in Egypt, um, blaming, you know, different groups in Egypt for either complicity or encouragement um, for overturning the democratic experiment. You know, also, uh, there were quite a few things that I, I just felt needed to be corrected from the point of view of somebody that was actually there. 
um, and uh, had a connection to the place. And what, one of the things that aggravated me, and, and frankly in some ways still does when it comes to coverage, not just about Egypt, but about the Arab world, is a lot of material being written by people that, you know, frankly don't spend enough time in the region, don't know the language, don't really care to try to learn it. Yeah. Um, so it's quite bizarre. You know, we, we're getting a bit of a taste of that right now when it comes to Brexit. Um, in that I see, um, amusingly, um, quite a few different types of analyses coming from abroad, um, uh, whether from America or elsewhere, trying to analyze our own political environment. Um, it's not quite the same, though, because um, our language is English, and English is far widely spoken, uh, far more widely spoken, I should say, um, than Arabic is uh, from the, in these different places. So people do at least access a lot of the same information. Um, but it's, uh, it's a, a lot of it is caricature. A lot of it is very cartoonish in the way that things are represented. Um, I don't feel too bad about it because I think that we're, we're getting a bit of a taste of our own medicine mm -hmm. in that, yeah. you know, a good deal of Orientalism was rooted from within the UK. And I've seen a lot of really poor analysis from within the UK about other places. So it might well be good for us to learn a bit of humility in that regard. Um, but having said that, when it came to Egypt, I was, I was very, uh, very frustrated with how often that took place. Um, and granted, um, uh, I have a particular connection to Egypt that, you know, most Westerns would not um, because I'm partly Egyptian. Um, but even so, um, I thought it was important that before you start really making conclusive arguments about a place, you should at least try to learn about the place uh, beyond, you know, a couple of visits of two weeks here and there um, and make an effort to actually understand the place from the perspective of people who are of that place, who are from that place, who, who have a what I what I uh, what I wrote somewhere else um, have uh, have stakes in the place. They have skin in the game, mm. um, and if you don't have skin in the game, then I'm afraid your analysis will reflect that. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really important point that that that's often overlooked by by people writing on on things because because they're in the news and there's a there's a need for a quick turnaround. I think that's where where academia has so much to contribute because of that vested interest, because of that slow pace of analysis, which gives gives scholars the time to to really get to grips with, with what's happening and to um, to get that skin in the game, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, just uh, touching on, on the book a little bit more, if I may, what, what are, th are the main conclusions that, that you teased out about that period then, about that, that tumultuous two-and-a-half-year period, looking back on it? I think the main thing that I, I concluded, which, um, again, wasn't a particularly popular conclusion, is that none of this was inevitable, okay? I think that it's uh, we get very comfortable saying, oh, you know, it was always going to work out le like this, and, you know, um, a strong man would always be coming back, and, you know, a democratic experiment could never work with these, with these Arabs, you know, it would always come back to this sort of arrangement. And uh, my argument in the book uh, was that that's complete nonsense, um, that on the contrary... At many different points, um, things could have taken a very different turn, um, and these these rather poor and frankly racist arguments, uh, insisting that Egyptians, in particular, but Arabs more generally, can't do um, accountable government, um, uh, are simply that they're just racist and baseless. Um, so the the main thing that I wanted to point out throughout, you know, the book was. 
you know, we, uh, uh, we had many different events take place. Um, those events could have worked out very differently uh, had people made slightly different choices. Um, nothing was inevitable in that mm. regard. Uh, people made definitive choices for themselves. And, you know, we could argue that they were more likely to do that than otherwise. Um, but that's the same for everywhere around the world, um, including within the UK um, or the US or anywhere else for that matter. Um, so I, I, I wanted to really challenge that idea that, you know, these things were uh, were simply always going to happen and that, you know, it was pointless to have um, any sense of optimism. Um, on the contrary, you know, given everything that's happened, uh, I, I find Egypt to be uh, to still be quite um, an inspiring story in different ways because I think that if you took what had been thrown at Egyptians over the past decade and you had taken those same things and thrown them at other populations, they probably would have um, reacted at least as poorly or at least as well, depending on how you want to look at it, or maybe even worse. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I try to imagine what might have happened within the UK if the value of the sterling had been halved literally overnight. Yeah, you know, of course. Um, overnight, not simply over the course of many years, but literally overnight. Um, it's, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to imagine, to be quite frank. So, there's, there's quite a few things that, uh, that are like that when I compare how coverage of Egypt uh, compares with other places. Uh, but that's the basic message, really. That um, there were a lot of. Uh, poor assumptions, which I wanted to correct, at least from my own point of view. Uh, I tried to root it in as much empirical data as possible. Uh, I used to be a poster at Gallup, um, so I had a, a fair amount of data to draw on in that regard. Um, and it was also a very self-reflective exercise for myself. And, you know, that's why I say that it's not necessarily for the same reason that authors usually write books. Um, this was really um, about me reminding myself and putting on down on paper um, what the, what those uh, two and a half year, uh, years were like in particular. Mm. And, I, and as I said, because it was such an exciting time, I'd really written quite a lot. Um, so to prepare for writing the book, I actually just went through my old articles. Um, now, I didn't reproduce them, but what I did do was use them as a way for me to remind myself um, what was I thinking at the time, was I correct looking back on it? And if I wasn't, then why? What were the mistakes that I had made in my analysis? Um, what were the flaws in my analysis? And I mentioned that in the book. I'm, I tried to be quite honest in that regard. That, you know, for example, I thought uh, certain movements were more popular than they were. Um, uh, I, I thought that maybe this was more important than it was, um, or I didn't take enough notice of that. You know, I, and I tried to make that very clear in the book. Sure. And you, you mentioned that it was in part a, a way for you to reflect on, on things and your own memories and experiences. What did you take out of it for you then, looking back on that period? You mean in terms of actually being in Asia at the time? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's interesting you say that because I, uh, and I think I mentioned this somewhere in the book, where I felt that living for a year in Egypt during that period was like living for three or four back in the UK because of the, the amount of energy that was just sort of pulsating through the political arena at the time and the sense of potential and possibility uh, that existed. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. Um, so it, uh, it did put a lot of things into perspective for me. Um, perhaps the most important one is uh, to always try to center um, 
the the experiences of a people when trying to analyze them as opposed to trying to sort of graft our own frames and, and frames of references um, in that regard onto them. So, you know, there's, uh, so for example, I did a lot on Islamophobia in the UK and anti-Muslim bigotry. And the frames that I use in that regard are very much about the UK and about Europe and the West and so on. And what I found very interesting and frankly quite disappointing was people trying to use those exact same frames to explain Egypt during the 2011 to 2013 period. Um, and what do I mean by that? When we talk about anti-Muslim bigotry and Islamophobia in the UK, we generally talk about a Muslim population that is being discriminated against by people who are not Muslim, right? That's yeah. the basic sort of frame. Um, for whatever reason, etc. and we go, uh, you know, the, there's scores of literature on that. I, I found the same sort of frame being applied... Um, to Egypt and to other parts of the Arab world, particularly uh, Libya, Tunisia, um, to a lesser extent Syria. Um, and uh, it, it really baffled me because it's a frame that simply doesn't work within Egypt. You know, uh, the Muslims are actually the vast majority of the population. Yeah. Right? And uh, Islamophobia doesn't really exist per se. Um you might have people that are more interested in a role for religion in, in political life than others, but you know those even those who opposed the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, most of them were conservative Muslims. Um, so the 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 framing of you know oh it's the, and this I saw many times that the Muslim Brotherhood. And their supporters are the quote-unquote Muslims in that equation. And those who oppose them or are unhappy with them, they're the Islamophobes. It's like, this is ridiculous. That's mm. not the frame. It can't be the frame. It makes absolutely no sense. But yeah. I saw it being pushed quite often, actually, um, because it was something that was familiar to people. So uh, this this I remembered quite uh, quite a lot at the time because it reminded me that you, you can't center other people uh, other countries' experiences in order to understand what's going on somewhere else. You need to try to understand first how those frames influence you as the analyst and try to deconstruct that and make sure that you don't have those biases in, uh, in place when you're trying to do your analysis of other places. And then try to understand their frames of reference. Not your own, but their frames of reference. And I think that, you know, if I've learned nothing else but that through that experience, then I think that that's quite worthwhile. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we've we've had a number of guests on, on the podcast talking about positionality and the importance of, of sort of critical self-reflections on one's own positionality. But your point about centering local experience and local agency is absolutely central. It's that's absolutely integral to, to what we as scholars are, are aspiring to do. So that, that combination of positionality and centering, I think, is is key. Um Hisham, I'm conscious that, that we've taken up a lot of your time and you're you're on a rather uh, delicate clock. So if I may, I'll ask one final question and then perhaps we can get you back on to talk about your, your work on, on Muslims in, in Europe, which is absolutely fascinating and incredibly important. But if I may, I'll just ask you, drawing on your, your experiences and, and the book, what, what future do you see for Egypt at present? Uh, that was your last question, was it? Okay. That's my um, last question. So we're going on for another hour. Um, <laughs> so, you know, um, 
Uh, I tried predicting Egypt um, quite a few times over the past decade, um, and I stopped um, at a certain point because I realized that that was very difficult to do with any degree of certainty. Yeah. Um, there were some things that I got right, which I mentioned in the book, and some things that I didn't, which I mentioned in the book. And the the reality is is that you you don't really know what happens in Egypt. Um, there are certain things that are very clear: um, the economic situation on a macro level which, you know, the Egyptian government constantly reminds people is doing quite well. But on a micro level, um, i.e. how people on the ground actually feel um, and how they engage with the economy uh, is a far less positive scenario entirely um, and is a very difficult one. So one has to keep that in mind and and know that um, those same uh, frustrations and factors that existed in 2010, they still exist in 2019, and they're probably far worse in many different ways, and you have far more polarization within society um, as compared to then as well. Mm. So, um, you know, there's no, uh, there's no certainty about where all that goes. Um, I don't uh, foresee a great upheaval happening anytime soon, but soon is a very relative concept. So, you know, sometimes people ask me, do you think in a year or two or five or 10 would anything change? And I, I don't have the answers to that. Um, I don't see anything right now. And I do watch the situation in Egypt very, very closely. Um, but I wouldn't put it past uh, Egypt as well. Uh, for any any sort of uh, of upset to take place, because the factors are there. You know, the 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 population is around a hundred or so million. The average age is about twenty three, twenty four. Um, you know, so it's a very young country in that regard. And the uh, uh, the ability of the system to provide for the huge numbers of jobs and people coming into the into the workforce every year. You know, that, that's that's not a foregone conclusion at all. On the contrary, it's a very concerning one, um, let alone questions around infrastructure, um, for health, uh, for education, how that's all going to work out. So um, uh, I, I think that Egypt um, remains and continues to have a, a great deal of potential. The question has always been to me whether or not um, the political leaders that sort of float to the top um, are able to see that potential and do what is necessary um, to actually actualize it. Um, and thus far, that hasn't been the case. Um, and uh, I don't know when that will be the case. Uh, but I do know that as compared, again, to many other countries that I've looked at worldwide, um, I think that Egyptians have responded to the, the turmoil of the past decade um, in you know ways that could have been better, but but still, compared to many other places, um, I think that uh, it could have been much worse. And I hope, uh, I hope and pray for the best for this country. Sure. Well, on that um, that incredibly reflective, but hopefully slightly optimistic note, praying for the best. We'll leave it there. But thank you so much, Hisham. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. It's been wonderful to chat, and there's so much to think about, so much to digest. Thank you. You're most kind. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you, Hisham. And thank you for listening. Until next time.